I'm not going to spend a long time introducing this one. It's just one of the most fascinating chuvas, really a pair of chuvas that you're ever going to come across just because they're just so bizarre, it's so unexpected, and it's like, what the heck is he talking about? I'm referring, of course, to the chuva of the Chacham Tzvi about whether or not one can include a golem in a minion. So Chacham Tzvi in Tshuva number 93, Tzadi Gimel, addresses this question. And if the question itself weren't strange enough, the way that he answers the question is even somewhat stranger. A generation later, his son, Rav Yaakov Emden, picks up where his father left off and sort of gives another whole rationale why a golem can't be counted in a minion. Chacham Tzvi's answer is more technical, which in a lot of ways just makes it weirder, as you'll hear. And Rav Yaakov Emden, his approach is more fundamental about you know the difference between a golem and a you know and a true human being. The reason that I decided to study these chuvot um, more or less is because these are the sorts of questions that are recurring now because question of AI and the question of what makes humans human and the whole question of chat GPT or the the bot that somebody was convinced last year had become sentient and that it would be unethical to to unplug it we're getting toward the point where these questions are going to become very real and I think that that's actually what was going on in the 18th century when Chacham Tzvi and Rav Yaakov Emden we're addressing the question. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Yes. Chacham Tzvi and Yaakov Emdin on counting a golem for a minion. Um, so, it sounds like, I, I don't know if this question ever came up, Halacholamaisa. It seems from what they write that it never did come up, Halacholamaisa, strangely enough. They're just having fun. <laughs> right, so is that the thing? Are they just having fun? Are they just like playing games? Is this like, is this like Purim Torah? Yeah. Right? Is yeah. it Purim Torah? Um, is there a precedent for like, um, like shoots with um, like just big questions, like fun questions? So that's an interesting question. There definitely are, and we, we have spoken a little bit about what we call pseudo chuvot. Sometimes it's just, he was, the particular posik was never asked the question in that he's dealing with, and sometimes the question is there. It's a real, it's a real question. You know, just he wasn't asked it. Right? Like the uh, the Chavos Yar was not asked about women saying Kaddish. The Chasam Sofer was not asked about carrying an umbrella on Shabbos. But both of them wrote chuvos on the topic for reasons that we discussed. There are all kinds of chuvas that'll say like lahalacha v'lolamaisa. There's an entire sefer. One of the one of the somebody from the family of the chasam sofer. And I can't remember who it is. 
But it's a great example of this as like tuvas as an intellectual exercise. And Chaim Seiman even brings it up in his book on halacha about like the whole idea of like this is just an intellectual exercise. This is not halacha lemaisa. Ask your local Orthodox rabbi that that whole writing halacha with that disclaimer that yes, I'm writing halacha, but I'm not writing halacha. It's like yes, I'm writing the law, but you did not the law that you should practice, right? Okay. Uh, and each time that comes up, you have to ask, okay, so then what are they trying to do? So, another yisod. Yeah. So is there a disclaimer like that in this Uh No, there's not. It's it's a more recent thing. You know, Rav Yaakov Emden, if he's writing things, he thinks it's lahalacha. If his father, the Chacham Tzvi, is writing things, he thinks it's lahalacha. Um, but what I think is going on here, and I think that this is true of halacha in general, and it's important to realize what's going on here, is philosophy asks big questions. And a lot of times, the, the big questions that philosophy asks are answered in a vocabulary that's very ethereal. It's very abstract. Now, since we're here in the gush, we like to think that Halachic dialogue also tends toward abstraction. But is that really true? Meaning we use terminology, you know, and sometimes those terms themselves become abstract concepts, and Rav Soloveitchik was a big fan of that, right? That ashtar isn't just a piece of paper with words on it. It's, a, it's this intellectual construct of ashtar, right? Um, you know, it's this, it's something else. It's a different type of object. But at the end of the day, the language of halacha is a language of things that you encounter in your everyday life. Even if it's trying to address, even if the, the particular halacha question is addressing a, a big idea. Right? So the big ideas are often discussed in halachic terms. So let's go back, and this is where Mo'oz Kahana's stuff comes in. We go back to the, 18, to the 1700s, to the 18th century. The beginning of the dawn of the age of reason. Now, and people are thinking about the words world in in different kinds of ways and how the world works and what's God's relationship with the work with, with, with the world. There's actually three different chuvas that the Chacham Tzvi wrote that deal directly with this kind of thing. Okay, one chuva is the famous chuva, which is really really long and complicated, and that's the title of Moos Kahana's book is the tshuva about a chicken that they shechted a chicken and they found that it doesn't have a heart. Is it a trefa? Because right, on one hand, I mean, it doesn't have a heart. It couldn't live. and It couldn't live for a year if it doesn't have a heart. On the other hand, how did it live until now? Right. So the question of like, what is, you know, the question is like, what is life? What constitutes life? What does it mean to live? If it's been living until now without a heart, then what's to stop it from continuing to live with without a heart? Um, I'm, I'm saying, uh, yeah. Isn't this not a trefa, though? What? It's not one of the trefas. That's the question. Is the list of trefas extensive? Or is it just basically... That's another... A simon for things that can't live long lives. It's only without a heart altogether, but that's what the chubas deal with. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of chubas on this that deal with a lot of things. So it was like a major controversy. And again, that also, like, how many how many times in a generation did this come up? You know, the Chacham Tzvi had to, you know, address that. 
Um, another one that he addressed is the, the second tshuva that he has that deals directly or indirectly with this is the one that we're going to learn today. And the third one, the third one is a tshuva that he wrote. It's actually in Ladino and in Hebrew. He wrote it to London because there was a rav there, Chacham uh, David Nieto, the author of the Kuzari Sheni, who was accused of heresy. Why? Well, because he preached against Spinoza. What was Spinoza's philosophy? Spinoza's philosophy is pantheism, that God is inherent in everything, that there is the entire universe shares a life force, and that we call God. Right? So it's this metaphysical entity that inheres in, in the entire world, in us, in, in everything around us, an animating spirit. That's what we call God. And then Chacham Nieto, he comes from the opposite direction. He's like saying, no, that's not what God is. God is separate from the world. God built the world, but God built the world in such a way that he, Kivyachal, remains separate from it and, um, and that it can run on its own. Now, there was a very popular metaphor around this time in the history of the world, in the history of science, late 1600s, early 1700s. What's the metaphor? The clockmaker. Excellent. Okay? God as clockmaker. What's the idea of a clockmaker? You build it. You wind it up, meaning you invest in it a certain amount of potential energy, and then you let it go, and it runs on its own. And in the 1700s, there were also people making more and more sophisticated clocks, not just 24-hour clocks, but year clocks, right? And... Have any of you ever read or seen the movie of Hugo Cabret? Yeah. Okay. So what's 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 Hugo Cabret doing there? It's it, well, it's it's clocks, but he also is creating these animatronics. Animatronics, automatons. Okay, an automaton is right. So I can build a robot that essentially works like a clock. Right? It's built by a clockmaker. It's the same tech. Right? And he's building a person. Uh, uh, this entity that looks like a person, writes things, makes gestures like a person, um, and it, it seems, it's a wonder because it seems almost human, okay? And as people are thinking like, well, are we, is that essentially us, just with a different level of sophistication, right? Are we essentially automatons, just we had a better clockmaker, but we also function like clocks, Right? In which case, that calls into question, it's like, what is life? What is a soul? What does it mean to be alive, to think like a human? Are we wind-up toys? Really, really, really sophisticated wind-up toys. And then the question becomes, well, if we are really, really sophisticated wind-up toys... Oh, okay, so hang on. i got to get take a step back because I, I jumped forward. So the, you have the Spinozistic conception versus the clockmaker's the clockmaker um, conception. Chacham Nieto espoused the clockmaker um, conception against Spinoza, and people in the community thought that this was clear because it's as though he's saying that God can no longer intervene in the world, right? Because you know, that also sounds like a little bit clearer to us because we're saying that like every leaf, every blade of grass has you know has, has hashkacha on it and. And, and he's saying that, no, the world can actually function on its own. It doesn't mean that God can't intervene. It just means like that he doesn't need to intervene. Extreme, like Rambam has the kind of middle way where there's a shkacha and a shkacha pratit. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I just don't want to like get my centuries confused, yeah. right? And it was only it was later in in the in the 1700s that you have this hybrid appro- approach called panentheism, which in the 1700s was espoused by panentheistic Jewish theological work composed in the late 1700s. If I have any Chabad listeners, they would get this in a second. The Tanya. Yep. The Tanya, and that sort of became. You know, Rav Cook took a similar a similar approach. Rav Sadok, like it, it became like a more um, you know, it, it caught on. It's probably the most common, the most commonly discussed one today. It's really called panentheism. That God is both separate from the world, meaning that the God inheres in the world, but that is not that does not exhaust God's being or. That, that God also exists beyond the world. The, world, the God in, both encompasses the world and inheres in the world. He's both mamale kala almim and and you know saviv mikala lefala almim. That's the you know that's the, the, the that hybrid approach. But people thought Chacham Nieta was a kofar because he seemed to be denying the possibility uh, that God could intervene in the world. So Chacham Tzvi basically wrote a tshuva in Ladino. Um, going to bat for Chacham Nieto and saying that, no, this isn't Kfira, this is what he means. Other people have other conceptions, but what he's saying is completely and totally kosher. Um, and that he was he, he probably said it in a little bit of an extreme way because he wanted to say how bad Spinozism is. Okay. That's the second That That's the third chuva that touches on these sorts of things. Okay? So, the question of Chickens without hearts is a question of same sort of thing. I can imagine a robot chicken that functions like a chicken, does everything that a chicken does, but doesn't have a heart because it has some sort of mechanism instead of a heart. Right? And what is the heart if not just a really complicated mechanism? Okay. So these are the kinds of... So, so it doesn't need to have a heart. It needs to have some sort of mechanism in order to make sure the blood pumps through the body. It could just be a, a pump. It could be, you know... And then the question of God's transcendence, meaning God as clockmaker. And then this third one of can you count a golem for a minion? Okay? And so it's interesting that these sorts of questions, these are, and they're major philosophical questions, right? So one of them comes into the question where it's directly theological. Is this clear? Is this not clear? But that's very rare in terms of chuvas. You usually don't have chuvas that are all about philosophy and ideology. The chuvas that we're used to is, okay, this chicken, is it kosher? Is it not kosher? Right? That's how halacha is processing the question of, is this thing alive? And the question of, can I count this thing for a minion, is halacha's weighing of addressing the question of, is this human? Okay? So that's the, that's the background. And I think that that's, the, that's probably, at this point, I, that's, the, that's the important takeaway of, of, of these two as in general. You have the Chacham Tzvi and Rav Yaakov Emden, father and son. They're living in Europe in the late set. They, you know, between the two of them, they span about a century from uh, you know the late 1600s to the you know, 
Rav Yaakov Emden died in 1776. Also, like the Nodim Yehuda was published in 1776, like the you know the bicentennial of the U.S. Easy to remember. Exactly 200 years before I was born. Easy to remember for me. And uh, and they're living in a world where you have innovation and you have both innovation in terms of ideas and innovation in terms of technology and what what can be made and what can be created with technology. And they're both um, and they're both trying to process. They're both trying to deal with it in in their own way. But like it's through the lens of halacha, right? and that's the key thing here. This is it's all being filtered through a halachic lens, because that's the language through which Judaism processes these things. Now, you would say that. I'm being a halachic supremacist. You know, Judaism also uh, processes things through Agada and through Minhag, and that's true. It was probably a little bit supremacist of, my, of me to say that's halacha. And Judaism, like, you know, we have our own philosophy. But... Um, I still think that the halacha is the primary way. And by the way, I, I wouldn't distinguish between halacha and agada in this regard so much because, I mean, the very fact that you're dealing with the question of whether or not you can count a golem for a minion, meaning an invented question, uh, is in a lot of ways a form of agada, right? It's using imagination to tell a story. It's, it's completely hypothetical, and it's a... Um, it's it's imaginative. So what does he say? He says, Nistapakti, right? I wasn't asked this question. Nobody, like, it weren't, like, ten guys, like, nine nine men in a golem sitting around in a shoal wondering if they can start mincha. He says, A person who was created through Sefer Yitzira. He says, what kind of book is Sefer Yitzira? Kabbalah, what? It's a creation book. <laughs> it's a book of creation. You know, that's literally what it means. a Sefer There is a Sefer Supposedly by Avram Avinu. Supposedly by Avram Avinu, yeah. <laughs> well, we know it's very old. It goes back at least to the time, like, Rav Sajagon wrote a parish on Sefer Yetzirah. Okay, the fundamental premise of Sefer Yetzirah is that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the sounds that they make are the very building blocks of creation. Right. You're going to hear that, and you're going to be like, that's absurd, that's uh, insane. I see it like Amira. Hashem said something, and it happened. Well, yeah, so this sort of drills into that and says that, no, everything is made up of these 22 building blocks. And they're like, oh, no, that's crazy. It's like, well, I mean, how many chemical elements are there? Right? 118. 118, how many of them are naturally occurring and that we encounter in our daily lives? Well, less than 100. A lot less than 100. Right? And everything is like, are you telling me that my entire body, everything is just like mainly carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen and maybe a little bit of iron and a little bit of, you know, some other stuff? Phosphorus. No silicone. This bike is real. Um, whatever, yeah, phosphorus, yeah, the Chernobyl Rebbe. Um, yeah, I was saying, like, fine, we're all made out of, like, just those building blocks. So, that whole idea, and, but, like, and the so ancient thing is different, uh, like, you're thinking about, you're saying something that's pretty much abstract. That makes it, well, you think of it as, 
It's not the amount that's crazy to me. It's the actual thing that you're talking about, which is right. pretty abstract. So, letters. So that's true. That is true, right? It, but it is what, what you know. What I'm trying to say is that it's an elemental theory. Okay, just like you know the the classic you know Galenic theory is there are four elements, right? Earth, air, wind, and fire. Earth, air, no, earth, air, water, and fire. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you have the regnant paradigm today of the you know of the the atomic theory. So, Sefer Yitzira has a theory that the, the atoms of the world are essentially the letters of the Aleph Bet. And that everything is, it literally calls them Seirufim, different combinations of the letters, right? So, if you look into the structure of everything that exists, deep embedded within the structure of everything that exists, is the Hebrew language, the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. Because that's, those are the building blocks that God used to create the world. Now, if you can somehow master the use of those building blocks, then you can replicate what God did. God created man. If you can master the technique of how God created man, then you can create a man. Okay. Now, Obi said that Savor Yetzira is a Kabbalistic work. And I think that that's probably how it's treated today. And I think that that's probably how we tend to treat anything that we're like, wow, this makes no friggin' sense to me. It's like, oh, yeah, it's uh, I'll be Kabbalah. Right? The Kabbalah is just a way of saying, I do not have the words to understand what's going on here. Okay? But at different points in history, Sefer Yetzirah was seen as was seen through different lenses, was seen through different paradigms. Right? There were times that people thought of it as science. I believe that like, I haven't learned it with Rafsadja Gaon's parish, but I, think, I don't think that Rafsad yeah, seems like a pretty rational kind of guy. He, he was <laughs> in the rationalist school, right? And he wasn't. I don't know if we would call what he was, maybe we would call what he was doing Kabbalah, but I don't think that what he would call what he was doing esoteric or mystical. Okay? Um, there were, Savory Yitzira was considered to be an alchemical text in many, you know, for, for a lot of history, like early, early modern history in the Renaissance, right, where people were looking to, like, recover these ancient texts on, you know, this ancient wisdom. And Sefer Yitzir was seen as, like, this is one of those ancient volumes, one of those ancient types of human, ancient types of wisdom that can be, that we need to bring back. And I'll tell you, Rav Yaakov Emden himself was, I don't know if he was necessarily an alchemist, but he was a... Let's just say like this. Okay, today you have... You still have a little bit of a divide within the medical community. You have the people... You have, like, the interventionists, and you have the people who are interested in creating balance. Right? You have the people who are the interventionists, like like a surgeon, right? It's like, well, there's something wrong, like, cut it off or take it out. And then you have the people that are like, no, the issue here is 
that you are, you know, we don't want to treat the symptom, we want to treat the disease, and therefore we're going to tell you to, you know, change your diet and change your habits, and we look at the person more holistically, and we're not trying to, like, treat the, the problem locally, we're trying to treat the person more holistically. Okay. So that debate goes back to the 1700s. You had the, you know, surgery was just coming, empirical surgery, and at some point we'll do the, the tshuva of the Noda Behuda on autopsies, which, again, it's a little bit later, but it's the same sort of question. And the and the Rav Yaakov Emden also has a tshuva on, um, also has a tshuva on, on autopsies. And it's an interesting thing because... He, it's a tshuva to a student of his who was learning in a, in a in a medical school at I think Groningen somewhere in Germany I think Groningen, and his student asked about performing autopsies. I don't remember what this was. Was it performing autopsies on Shabbos or if he's a kohen? Is he, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he asks. And he's basically, he's adopted the surgical paradigm. It's like, I need this because this is how we learn anatomy. I need to know all the pathways of the human body. And the only way to do that is by taking a human cadaver and dissecting the heck out of it so that I know how everything fits together. And that's going to help me become a better surgeon. And Rav Yaakov Emden, he's anti. He goes and he says, no, you shouldn't because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's nivel ames, and you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing anyway because that's not really the way to treat people. And by the way, I heard that in the library there they have like ancient texts from like ancient alchemical texts from like ancient Jewish sages. If you can like copy them over for me, I'd be very grateful. Right. So he's adopted the other paradigm. Moz Kahana has written a couple of articles about this, and these are like this is like it's really good stuff. I was like, it's not that he's it's not that he's anti-science, Rav Yaakov Emden. It's just he had adopted a different scientific paradigm. Right, the paradigm of, or maybe it was an older paradigm, but it was a scientific paradigm, no less than the other paradigm of, no, it's about humors and it's about balance and it's about uh, treating a person holistically, and not about, you know, just cutting in to take out the thing that's diseased. Fine. Um, so, so where does that leave us with? Okay, so. And Sefer Yitzira is definitely in the the holistic paradigm, in the sense that you know we're what what we're trying to do when we learn Sefer Yitzira is we're trying to we're trying to essentially crack the genetic code of the universe, right, or the molecular or the atomic code of the universe to figure out how we can combine the base elements of creation in order to manipulate them. So. If God created man, then a man can create a man through Sefer Yetzirah. So, and then he gives precedence. Kamosa Sha'amru Bisanhedrin. Rava Baragavra. There's a Gemara in, well, here he says Rava Baragavra. Right? It's Kirsos there. This is that Rava created a human. Right? And then he skips a thousand years. And then there were, there are reports about my grandfather, Hagon Rabbeinu Eliyahu. Av Bezdin de Kal Kadosh Chal, right? Revel Yahu of Chal. That he built a golem, right? And it's his grandfather, so that would have been like, well, early 1600s. There are reports that my grandfather built a golem in Chal. 
So, me mitztarev la'asara. What dvarim hasrikan la'asara? Can you count them for a minion? Kigon kadesh u kedusha. Me amrina. Kevan dichsev v'nis kadashti v'sok b'nei Yisrael. Lo mitztarev. Right? On one hand, it says v'nis kadashti v'sok b'nei Yisrael. So it's not mitztarev because he's not the b'nei anyone. He's not born to a human. And like, and, and he's being medayig in the b'nei. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's mima'et, right? It's like making a drusha. It says b'nei Israel, which is mima'et. It excludes anyone who's not born through a natural, through a normal human birth, born to human parents. Okay? It's not like he doesn't have a soul, he doesn't have this, he doesn't have that. He doesn't, no, it's exeris a cousin. O Dilma, came in the Kaimalan. What? If you adopt a child, it's as though you raise that child. Okay. Okay. Since this person was created by a tzaddik, it's as though this homunculus, this man-made man, was raised by Rabbi Frankenstein and rather Rabbi Dr. Frankenstein um, and, and is considered an adopted son and so they're considered part of B'nai Yisrael. Those are the two sides of, this, of, the, of, the, of the Chakira that the Chacham Tzvi raises. Nearly. So, what's the story in Sanhedrin there? Rabba or Rava created a person, sent it to Rabbi Zeir. Rabbi Zeir says, You're from the magicians. Chavraya are the Magi, the Zoroastrian magicians. Tuvla Afra, go back to your, go back to your, return to your dust. Haresha Hargo, he killed him, right? He just turned him into a pile of dust. If you had a Havamina, that you could count him for a minion, the whole Davar how could Rabbi Zera kill him? If this person's a real person, how could Rabbi, Rabbi Zera just like wave his hand and Right, even though, even if there's not, not necessarily an iser shvichas damim, the hachi diek kra shovech dam haadam baadam damo yishavech davka adam hanotar toch adam. By the way, adam baadam, right, is a person within a person, and that's the drasha that the gemara later in Sanhedrin uses to forbid abortions to bnei don't to bnei noach. Right? It says the, the full pasuk is Shofech Dam Ha Adam Ba Adam Damo Yishafech. Right? So it's a chiastic parallel. Shofech Dam Ha Adam, somebody spills the blood of man, and through man his blood will be spilt. Right? Meaning he will be put to death by a fellow human beings. But the Gemara there, because it's because it switches the order, because it has that chiastic you, you, it has that chiastic read, right? It's shofech. The, the Gemara reads shofech dam ha adam ba adam. If somebody 
spills the blood of a man within a man, a person within a person, their blood shall be spilled. So what is a person within a person? Right? A fetus. And therefore it's forbidden for uh, under Mitzvah's B'nai Noach to commit feticide. Okay. So now he's taking that same drasha and he's saying that, okay, so you're allowed to... You, you can also take it to mean that any person that's under the category of Adam for the Isser of bloodshed has to be an Adam Ba'adam, has to be a person that's created within another person, right? Or created by another person. So again, a pure technicality that you're allowed to terminate a, um, a terminate a a, a golem. Well, that's a fair ben noach. What? That's a fair ben noach. Right. So you're saying that for a ben noach it will be mutter, but for a Jew it might be usher. Yeah. Right. If we're assuming this guy's a Jew, then we have an usher to kill Jews. I don't know. It's true. Hang on. So I say, let, let's. Let, I want to go through the logic again. Rabbi Zera. So Rabbi Zera killed this entity. So, so, and, 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 if he would, and if you could count him for a minion, he wouldn't have done so. So even though there's no Isser to kill, you know, to terminate this entity, right? So, and, and he brings a riot. You're saying that he could have brought a, a, bigger, a better riot, right? That he didn't have to bring a riot from Shofei Chadam Ha'adam Ba'adam. He could have brought a riot from... Uh, from the no, I'm from Losirtsa would be a problem. Well, no, it would be a better Raya. No, if Losirtsa would apply to something that wasn't even born, no, and the fact he does it means that it's not even like a person. Yo, Hang on, we gotta, you gotta finish. You gotta, you gotta get to the end of the sentence. We haven't gotten to the what we call Mako. So then you just think it's a proof. Oh, Losirtsa applies to Jews. The fact that Losirtsa doesn't apply to the Golem, so it must not be a Jew. That's what you're trying to say. But you're just saying it's not even a person. Yeah. Right. 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 So it excludes, it excludes the person created by Rava. Because he wasn't created within the womb of a woman. Since he's useful, right? This is very utilitarian here. He shouldn't have destroyed him. It's like... It's like why do you why'd you kill him? That's, you know, he was useful, right? He yeah, could he could bring he could bring me my slippers. Right? It's like the sorcerer's apprentice almost, right? You know, do 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 do. Um So you're saying that he could have just said that like you didn't even have to go through that whole thing, like, yeah, it's true, maybe it's not us to kill him, but still you shouldn't kill him because it's useful. It's like Baltashkis, right? Um and you could say you could say even better if he has the status of a Jew, then he has the status of a he has the status of a person, right? And we have, you know, it might be mutter for a non-Jew to kill such an entity, but we, it's usher for a Jew to kill such an entity. Um, but he doesn't go there. Okay, so it's a bizarre mahalach. Now let's go. Let's take a look at Rav Yaakov Emdin. The other link that I sent. Also, a short Simon Chelik Bay's Simon Pei Bay's. Bidin 
the status of a notar al yedei sefer yitzira, somebody that was created through sefer yitzira. How do maspole omar abba? My father was unsure about this. But notar al yedei sefer yitzira im instar flasar kasha kasha li. I have a kasha on my father. My come on What's this question? Atu mi adif bechere shotav katan. Is he any better than a cherry shot of a katan? The inanimate starfin who don't count for a minion? Well, I think he's gonna. Right, so it's implied already, meaning the Chacham Tzvi gives no. The Chacham Tzvi gives no indication that this person would be distinguishable from another person. But the the. Shilas Yavitz, his son, is already already implicit in what he says here. He's saying that you can tell that there's a difference between you. You can tell who's a golem. Right? You can tell who's a golem. Right? I would say differently. You can tell who's not a golem. Right? And this is, by the way, these kinds of questions, these kinds of questions are coming up again because of the questions of uh, questions surrounding AI. Right? Artificial. At what point does artificial intelligence become sentient? At what time point does it become you know, uh, unethical to pull the plug on an AI, right? And these are the kinds of moral questions that people are raising, and how do you know? And there was that whole thing about that guy that was fired from some AI company because he was convinced that it was sentient and was trying to, like, protect the rights of this AI bot, as it were. Um, and, and these are the kinds of questions that, like, they're being raised again. They probably were raised at all times, but they're being raised now because... We start seeing AI, you know, chatbots that can really start to that are really starting to resemble uh, human decision making and human um, and human um, human conversation, human human communication, right? To that, I would say that like this is why I said what I said before. It's like it's very hard to distinguish a chatbot from like a um, a mediocre human being. Someone had a lobotomy or something. No, I'm saying, like, it's true. Like, if you're, you know, if you teach even in college, right, what an AI might submit as a paper would might be kind of indistinguishable from what a human student would distinguish as a paper. But that's, like, it, it's not that the, it's not, that doesn't mean that the AI is passing the Turing test. It means that the, the AI is failing the Turing test. Right, meaning I'm sorry that the, that the person that the AI is passing the Turing, t- Turing test. It means that the human is failing the Turing test. Right? It's it's that the person is, is you know th- this person can't write well enough to distinguish himself or herself from AI from a machine. Okay, and and that's where Rav Yaakov Emden is going. Like a, a, an a, a an artificial human should be distinguishable from a real human. Right? He doesn't even rise to the level of Chere Shot of a Katan. The Enum is talking. The Aval Gab, Even though they are, Chere Shot of a Katan, yeah, they're, they're B'nai Israel. And yet, they're not counted for a minion. B'chashuven Kikshar Adam Yisrael Choldavar, and they're considered, Chere Shot of a Katan, are considered full fledged Jews for every other, for everything else. Except for when it comes to mitzvahs. And if you murder one, you're a But they have lesser knowledge. They have a weaker, they have weaker minds. Right? And this is certainly the case 
And he's talking about a katan who, you know, who, whose mind is developed. They still don't, aren't included in a minion. So I got the lav bardea who cloud, but this person, this artificial person, is not a bardea at all. Okay? And this, his father never said anything about that. His father could imagine, anyway, someone who's indistinguishable. But his son is saying, this person can't be a bardea. Right? Rabbi Zera schmoozed with him, so you have to say that he's capable of some sort of communication. So maybe he's in the category of cheresh. He's not a bardea. The loa haderlei. Ah, I'm sorry. Miras bechlal cheresh who the ishtoi Rabbi Zera v'hadei. Rabbi Zera said something to him. Loa haderlei, and he didn't respond. So havadai garamine is less than a cheresh. But still, it seems that he, he, he couldn't speak, he couldn't respond, but he could hear the Shadre Lakami Rabbi Zera, because Rava sent him to Rabbi Zera. So he obviously was capable of following instructions. So there's a Cheresh, somebody that can hear but can't speak. He's a mute. He's not a, he's not a deaf mute. He's not a deaf. He's a mute. And a mute who can hear, is considered a pikeach. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Because if he could hear, he also would be able to speak. It wouldn't be impossible for him. So it must be that he only, he, when, when, when Rava sent him, he only understood like the gestures, like a, a form of primitive sign language, right? Gestures and 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 hints. The same way that you like teach a dog to fetch or play dead, right? It's not even. It's less than cheresh, right? Less than cheresh shot right? It's like a dog you can train. To bring something to someone else, to you know, to bring you your slippers. The cost of Sefer Chasal, I don't know what Sefer that is. She'en chayuso elakechius habehema, that the life of a golem, a man-made person, is like animal life. Like the per- it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not a human life, it's not a human existence, it's, a, it's like an animal. You're, you're, there's no problem with killing it because the same way that there's no actual transgression in killing in killing an animal, right? It's not a good thing to do. There's all kinds of reasons not to kill and not to hunt and not to wantonly destroy animal life. But there's no specific avera that you're over when you kill an animal. What this is is this is an animal in the form of a man. Rabbi Eliezer for Rabbi... It's, I don't think it's Chia. I thought it was Tanoim. It's also there in the Gemara in... That's also there in the Gemara in Sanhedrin. That there were two Amorayim that were learning Sefer Yitzira one, you know, one Arab Shabbos. And... Whoop, Sefer Yitzira shows up in the Gemara too? Yes. Yes. It mentions Sefer Yitzira. But we don't know what that Sefer Yitzira that they're referring to says. Meaning we don't have manuscripts from back then. But we do have stuff from a little bit... You know, not that much after. A few hundred later, years later, we have stuff from like Rav Sajigon. 
That's like the, 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 the 800s, the 900s. It's not that long after the Gemara. Um, so they were learning Sefer Yetzirah, and they inadvertently created um, veal. They created these, these calves that they could eat on Shabbos, and there was a question of whether they required shechita. So Aga, by the way, uh, once we're already talking about it, I'm going to tell you what I heard from my father. Right, so now we get more information. Rav Elia of Chelm is also known as Rav Elia Baal Shem, right? Rav Chacham Tzvi's grandfather. This is what happened after they created that thing. They saw him walking, saw him getting big, bigger. He was afraid that it was going to go destroy the world. He came, and this is like where you get all, all the golem, you know, mythology is, you know, it's like he took the sh- the name, right? And remember that Sefer Yitzhira, it works by combining names. So it's like, okay, it's like you're taking the key out of the ignition, right? You're taking that name that was still there in his forehead, and by doing that, this battle of Afro, the, is the entire entity collapsed and went back to being dust. But in its dying, in its last gasp, it tried to hurt my great grandfather, Rav Elia Baal Shem, and he, scra- he scratched his face. Right? So it didn't want to die, right? That's, yeah, it must have been an artificial intelligence because it didn't want to die. Um, and so it had a self-defense mechanism, which is goes against the laws of robotics. Um, I don't think it does. No, it's, you, you, you can't. No, it, it's, you, you have no self-defense mechanism against humans. Oh, against humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's against other robots, maybe, but not against humans. Um, but this obviously didn't have that, and so it, um, and, and so it managed to do some harm to Rav Elia Baal Shem Tov. I wonder if Isaac Asimov was like a descendant of that. That would be like so on brand, right? Isaac Asimov, sure. Yeah. I'm gonna conclude with. Purim Torah. It's actually a Purim Torah, and it's really interesting. We discussed the Gemara in Sanhedrin that talks about how Rava or Rabba creates a human being using Sefer, Sefer Yitzira, sends, sends it to Rebbe Zera. Rebbe Zera is like, hey, you can't talk, you can't do anything. Poof. Turns him back into dust. Now, if you look in, I think it's in the Gemara in Megillah that he makes the gears of change, but it might be in the Gemara in Sanhedrin that he makes the gears of change. It's actually none other than Rav Yaakov Emdin who changes the girsa from Rava to Rabba. It's not Rava that created a person, it's Rabba that created a person. Why? Why did he want this to be a story about Rabba and Rabbi Zera and not Rava and Rabbi Zera? Well, there's another really famous story about Rava about Rabbah and Rabbi Zera. And that is their famous Purim Se'uda together. That means the Gemara tells us that they had Purim Se'uda together and at the end of the Purim Se'uda, 
the, well, I guess this was the end of the Purim Sutta. This ended the Purim Sutta. Rabbah got up and killed Rabbi Zera. Come Rabbah v'shachted Rabbi Zera. He, he killed him. And then he davened for him. He brought him back to life. Neat trick if you could pull it off. And then the following year, Rabbah invites Rabbi Zera to the Purim Sutta again. He says, hey, come back. We had a great time. Zera's like, I'm good. No thanks. Can't count on a miracle. And so Rabbi Yaakov Emden actually sees the story in Sanhedrin as the continuation of that story. Really? I can't make a miracle anytime I want? Well, check this out. Builds a golem, sends it to Rabbi Zera. You think I can't create life? I can create life. I can create a person. I can bring you back to life. Rabbi Zera gives the gives the golem a little far hair and says, no, this is not the kind of life that I'm interested in. This is not what I want. No, I'm not going for your Purim Suda because I can't, uh, I got no guarantees that I'm going to come out of this alive. So those are the, that's the sugya, if we can call it a sugya. And that's the story. And that's the, the sort of question I think I framed it in a way uh, that we can make a little bit more sense about what's going on here, why they're asking this kind of question, um, what's sort of sitting in the background of this entire discussion. Uh, tune in next week where we'll go back down the rabbi hole to explore another topic in the history of halacha.